Welcome back to the OPEX podcast where fitness is explained. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and I'm joined on today's show by Dr. Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization. On this episode, Mike and I get into an in-depth discussion around the concepts covered in his book, How Much Should I Train?, that he co-authored with Dr. James Hoffman. Guys, this is an absolutely outstanding episode with Mike. It is jam-packed full with information. I know you're going to love it. Stay with us. All right, Dr. Mike Isertel, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come on to the OPEX podcast. I really appreciate you making time. Let's get into this. How much should I train? Mike, tell me how much should I train? Just, just so you know, I pretty much live most of my life at MV, so I'm, I'm going to be disappointed in with my train volumes. <laughs> no. More clearly by your physique. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, no, you're not. No, you're not, you bollocks. Well. Uh, and maybe just for the listeners and the viewers, because like we're not going to keep saying the full words. So just so you know, MRV means maximum recoverable volume. MEV means max or minimum effective volume. MAV is maximum adaptive volume. And MV means maintenance volume. So we'll be using those acronyms throughout. So just in case, if you need to rewind, go back here and listen to that. Now, I'm going to shut up. Let Dr. Isertel talk. So Mike, maximum recoverable volume. Take it away, sir. First chapter two, like you kind of, as you moved on to like cross with athletes, you were like, now we also have to talk about a certain group of people who would try to train everything at once. Who would ever do such a thing? And then it's just like you open up the next paragraph, the sport or fitness is sport, and you were like, oh, yes. These people. <laughs> For sure. Crossfitters are, you know, they're amazing athletes, and they have a really big challenge because they're trying to get better at everything over the long term. Mm. And that means juggling the volume landmarks is sometimes over the short term. You kind of have to put something on a maintenance volume to advance something else on a maximum recoverable type of volume scale. So that gets really tough. But before you, you know, training for CrossFit's really intellectually difficult because you got to figure out how all the simple training works before you get to a complex mixed training. For yeah. sure. uh, I, I can see, t- like, again, in the very last chapter, you, you speak about that with team sports too, you know, this idea of uh, emphasizing certain qualities while you maintain others. I mean, to be honest, that's how I programmed for years. Let's get into uh, yeah, um, minimum effective volume, and then you can keep going on then to maximum, maximum adaptive volume. Sure. So minimum effective volume asks another question. It asks, what is the least amount of training we can do and still improve? It's a very important question because here's the deal. If you could get gains – from half of the work that you were doing, why not radically lower your injury risk, radically increase the momentum of your training? Because if you start very low in volume, you've got a long mesocycle to go up in volume. And, uh, you know, if you've just never knew that there were easy gains down there to get, why the hell weren't you down there getting them? It's almost like uh, the, the, the analogy here is if, if there's gold in rocks on the surface, of a, like a gravel pit, why the hell would you mine deeper? You would when you got all the gold at the top first, but if there's literal gold right in front of you, you're like, nah, folks, we need to dig down. It's like, just pick it up, <laughs> right? And, and the other problem is, uh, so the other issue that maximum or sorry, uh, minimum effective volume uh, addresses mm-hmm. is we don't want to make the mistake of training below that. 
because sometimes people, especially, you know, when I developed the minimum effective volume and James and I uh, developed the sort of landmark in, in theory, at, at the time there was a lot of popularization of what we call minimalist programming. Yeah. Uh, you know, like just a couple of sets of everything per week. And it's, it works great for beginners. It works great for, ironically, really advanced athletes that can train so heavy uh, that their muscles are so big that they don't need much to make disruptions. Mm. For a swath of intermediates and tons of beginners and tons of advanced people, it just wasn't enough. Just fucking not enough training to get the job done. Yeah. And it's really sexy to want to think that you can get super good at sport way better by not really doing a whole lot and just some quirks and programming tricks. But at the, at the you know, base of it, you just got to train at least a certain amount. And especially when we factor in that as you get better until you reach really high-level uh, strength sport status, your minimum effective volume generally goes up, which is not a surprise. You know, two sets a week is going to make grandma stronger. It's going to make a kid who's never lifted stronger. Is it really going to make someone who's been lifting for five years stronger? Like, probably not. It might just conserve their strength. Mm-hmm. So you've got to know that your minimum effective volume moves up over time. And because you have to know that you have to know what it is and you have to know how to measure it to make sure that you're hitting yours. So that was minimum effective volume. And once we have MRV and MEV, we have something really beautiful developing. And this is when I was talking about those boundaries of, you know, if a toddler writes your program, it could be bad. It was very creative. Creativity is great in a program. So long as it at least doesn't do two things. One, Program volumes consistently below minimum effective volume in, in areas where you want to improve. And two, program consistently above maximum recoverable. Why not? Anything below minimum effective volume will not make you better. Hmm. Anything above maximum recoverable volume will not make you better. So then how do we get better? We train in that bandwidth between the two. Yeah. Super simple. There's your deep theoretical revelation about training volume that I think James and I were the first to really formalize because a lot of people were saying, well, there's this minimum effective dose concept and you should train at what's minimally effective. Ironically, that means you get literal minimal effects by definition. (laughs) I don't think anyone wants that. Uh, And then people were talking about you just do as much as you can, which is maximum recoverable, which again has its own problems. But somewhere in that range, I will argue later that it's most of that range, is where good training really lives. Enough training to make you better, not so much to make you worse. I think that minimum effective dosing too has come from strength and condition in terms of you get athletes who play sports and they're maybe talking about their physical preparation program and saying like, you know, just get enough from their physical preparation program that supports their sports training. And, you know, if you go to some of the concepts again from Ishran and, and what you guys cover in chapter eight, that could well be true because, again, you're having to play the game of emphasis and de-emphasis and certain qualities. But uh, the other thing I've often noticed too, like when, when they talk about like, like Dorian Yates and he's like, you know, he just did one big set all the time. It's like, I actually watched videos of Dorian Yates and he used to do like three or four warm-up sets that were like working sets. And yeah. then he did his big all-out set. So he would, like, that's what I've seen from a, a few of those things. Yeah. One of the things that James and I, another reason we developed the landmarks and wrote the book so meticulously, we're not really big fans of rhetoric and altering definitions to try to drive some kind of ideological point home. Um, You know, people say like, you don't actually have to do that much when you train. And then you're like, okay, explain. And they're like, but the stuff you do, you have to do like you're dying. Like it's got to be the hardest thing ever. And you're like, 
Okay, but in some other sense, that is a lot. <laughs> you know, the total stress is still a lot. Mm. And then some people are like, you know, volume is king, but you got to just never go to failure and stay four reps shy of failure. And you're like, okay, that's a lot, but it's not that hard. It's like if you try to drive an ideological point and try to be like, look, low volume's the shit, but you got to like literally die every set. Are you really proving any point short of no matter how you slice it, you got to end up being in the middle? Because if you think about opponent, proponents of super high volume training, usually against training to failure or anywhere close, proponents of super low volume training are usually against uh, going anything short of failure. And then a lot of times they'll drop sets and all this other stuff. So when you combine the two, they're all kind of leading towards the middle because that's where the most fertile ground is. And if we just clear about that, we can make intentional trade-offs uh, pretty well. But I think some people just get into this kind of like, well, I'm a hit advocate and I love low volume. And it's like, why? You know, and then they explain it. You're like, how about changing it like this? And they're like, oh, I guess, you know, and then just left with very little to stand on. Uh, it just all comes back to fucking ego at the end of the day. People are too insecure to, to be wrong or to actually have to think about something, you know? So, uh, Mike, someone comes to you and says, why can't I not just train in the middle range between the two? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there is a partially, a part answer you can give them that would say, yes, you can. And you can do a good job. And there's another kind of answer that would say that's not the optimal way to go about it. So the, and, and the yes, you can answer actually leads to the why the optimal way really works. You can train in the middle range, but right between minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable. But what you would have to do is start out with very light weights and end up with very heavy weights. Mm -hmm. The question is why? Because you need to provide meaningful overload. Yeah. How does overload happen? Overload means you're doing historically more than you were before, and it's within the threshold of maximum adaptive uh, uh, proclivity. Mm -hmm. So that threshold is already defined. It's MEV to MRV. Like any training there is overloading because it makes you better. So we're already in that threshold, so that's good. The next part of the uh, overload definition is it has to be overload means you do a little bit more in some way, whether it's more reps or more sets or more weight over the course of time, preferably sort of every microcycle or something like that. Mm. So if people want to train with volume, we know that volume, for example, hypertrophy is the easy one. Volume and hypertrophy are very, very closely related. They are more related than intensity and hypertrophy. This is already very crystal clear from all the research. So uh, the best advice you'd give someone is do a lot of training. Uh, it's not train heavy. Train heavy is best for strength, but it's for, for size, for hypertrophy. It's actually more clear that just how much you train is going to make you bigger versus smaller. Mm -hmm. So if we look at it this way and someone says, why can't I just stay in the middle range of volume for training for size? The next question you could ask them is, why not just use the same weights every day when you come to the gym? Hmm. And they'll say, well, well you got to put more weight on the bar because you're getting stronger. You want to provide overload to go, but you got to put more volume in your program because you adapt to volume. It's no longer overloading and you got to escalate plain and simple, right? So yeah. it's the overload principle that demands that we go through a range of volumes. And then someone could say, okay, once we get to our maximum recoverable, we have to deload, which is completely correct why don't we go back down 
to the volume we were at just before we had to deload and start driving it again. And there are a couple of really serious disadvantages to that. Mm. One of them is, you know, if you can go back to the minimum effective volume, you can just have better momentum and get really easy gains down there. Why not just go all the way back down? Mm. And also, if you, let's say, did, you know, 100 kilos for 10 sets of 10 in the squat two weeks ago, you deloaded last week, and you're going to start 100 kilos for eight sets of 10, even though you could do 100 kilos for six sets of 10 and still grow, that's minimum effective. Uh, why, not, why not start at nine or eight sets of 10? Because how long is your mesocycle going to be if you go nine sets of 10, 10 sets of 10, 11 sets of 10, deload? That's three loading microcycles. But if you did six sets of 10, you go six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. That's what, five or something like that? That's more time training through the whole beneficial range. And um, I think people have this... Um, loss of an appreciation for overload being a range and for every part of the range to be good to go through. Uh, we've been, I've been on a lot of um, podcasts uh, with Eric Helms uh, recently, and I'm sure you know who that is. And uh, he, Eric, Eric who? Yeah, I've never heard of that man. So, you know, one thing he talks about, uh, which is um, something that I think is very, very important to understand is, Overload is a range. It's not that if you've, if you've done 10 by 10 at 100 kilos in the squat two weeks ago, overload doesn't mean that anything less than that will never get you bigger or stronger. It doesn't. Mm. It means there's a range below that number that you can, can make you better and a little bit above that number. And working through that range is good, awesome, relatively easy gains. So people will say, well, why can't I just stay at one intermediate value? Two reasons. One, you're robbing yourself of overload because why not progress through volume like you progress for everything else? And two, you're short-circuiting the entire process by avoiding otherwise very beneficial ranges. Mm -hmm. So I could almost, my next, my final retort to this why not stay in the middle range, and of course this is addressed incredibly in detail in the maximum adaptive volume chapter, um, why would you want to do that? You know, like some people ask questions and, uh, you know, and your, your question to them is, why are you so interested in even asking that question? It's like someone would say, you know, um, I, I have a, a bike that has three gears on it and a perfectly working bike that has five gears on it. I want to take the three-gear bike up a, up a mountain biking trail um, and not the five-gear bike, but I know the three-gear bike is worse for that. Can I still take the three-gear bike? If you're a cycling coach, you'd be like, why aren't you taking the five-gear bike? And they're like, well, I don't, I don't know. Like people say, like, why can't I just train with the same volume? My next question to them is, why are you even asking? Why, why are you so tempted to train with the same volume? Maybe it's for, what do you think, Robbie? Maybe it's for simplicity? They just want to keep things simple? Is that what it is? Like, humans, I don't know. Humans, humans are just fucked up. It's basically it, really. Well, there you go. There's your answer for the day. But, uh, yeah, a lot of times people ask these questions and they're like, you know, I just like, well, I don't understand why you wouldn't just want to do whatever works best and why you would take these purposeless limitations. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's like, it's like getting a Lamborghini and then putting regular tires on it and be like, well, why can't I just drive with the regular tires? But you can, it still works. It's just not going to be that great. We have a fucking Lamborghini. You might as well put good tires on it. Like if you're going into train and you're pissing away your time, that you could be banging hoes or banging dudes or do whatever the fuck you guys do 
over there and uh, in in Europe. Although you're not on the continent, so you're not really European. No, we're 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 like the second biggest weird country because like we're just off to the west. Like we're away. Europe was like, what are the Irish at? But the real weirdos are Iceland. What are they doing up in that country? I think mean, Iceland mm, are going to take over the world, man. They're going to take over the world. Look at all those great crosses pumping out of that country. The genetics there are unreal. 100%, 100%. But uh, it's just one of those things like it's, you know, if you're pissing away so much time training, you might as well not ask yourself needless stumbling block questions about why can't you make training ultra super simple. It's not that hard to cycle through volumes. It's at the same question. Of, I've, I've actually literally had this question asked to me before by really lazy people in high school. They were like, can I just get bigger and stronger by lifting the same amount of weight? And I'm like, go, go fuck yourself. Just get, get out of my face. I'm not going to answer that question. You know, the answer is, yeah, you can. It just won't be anywhere close to what you could have done. So why even ask that? It's the same kind of question. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember actually you answered a really good question on Steve Hall's podcast about that. And you were just like, if you did like shortened your rest periods, you know, increased tempo. Yeah. You technically, you could get away with that shit, but you were just like, why, why, why wouldn't you just put this more weight? Now you're, now you're like spending the same amount of intellectual effort on trying to get like a very second grade solution. You know, not, not second grade in the first, second or third grade, but second grade in the just worse than the one you could have had. But you're saving nothing because it's taking you even more intellect to try to figure out ways to train suboptimally. Yeah. And it, are you really in a weight room in which they don't have loadable weights? <laughs> you're not going to understand if you're like somewhere in the third world and there's just like 200 kilos sitting right there and it's just literally like a rail car, like wagon wheels or something. That's a great question. I just don't get questions like that from those people. You know, something uh, actually that we that I skipped over, I meant to ask you, because when I read this, I was like, ooh, that's a very interesting point. And again, it, like a lot of the stuff I, I read from the likes of yourself or Chad, maybe, it isn't so much that I'm like, oh, like that's like completely brand new. It's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. That's really interesting. And what I really liked was when you were speaking about when you, cha- when you put variation in the program in terms of change of the exercise, the effect that has on MRV and MEV. Because you get this novelty, you were saying. So your actual, the actual minimum effective dose goes down, and your MRV uh, uh, does it go up. I think that, but your your minimum effective dose goes down. Goes down too. Oh, it goes down too. Yeah, they both go down. Yep. Well, I know minimum effective volume goes down when you change up exercises because it's a new stimulus to the body. And then you're saying it, it actually it'll, it'll help prolong the accumulation period. And you're saying that's maybe more of a strategy then for more advanced people, where quantitative overload is kind of getting towards its ceiling point, and you're like more variation can maybe open up that. That, that spectrum again from MEV to MRV. So yep. that, that was a really good point too in the book, which I thought was very good. Um, MAV then. So the great thing about the first two chapters is it's kind of like when you got to chapter three, you're like, this chapter is a bit self-explanatory because once you understand the MRV you, and you understand MEV, uh, you're just like, MAV lives in the middle between that. Yep. Um, but you've got some really interesting concepts here in terms of what can affect that. So... Uh, do you maybe want to touch on those again? So you, you said fiber types, testosterone. And what I found really interesting, this, this is my favorite part in the chapter, was the work capacity. And you were saying like how excessive work capacity can screw up maximum adaptive volume. And particularly when it comes to like speed, power, and strength, you were like, you probably want to go more recovery modalities there than too much. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. that was real good. So yeah, let's just uh, sort of describe to the listeners what exactly it is we're talking about. There are fundamentally two ways to get yourself to be able to have a higher MEV to MRV window, mm-hmm. right? Uh, your, your MAV is going to go up. Uh, one of those ways is to sleep more and eat more, et cetera. Although 
technically that opens up your window, but it definitely raises your MRV, for example. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a good thing, right? Uh, the other way, or an, uh, another way, is to train with more volume and even more endurance type of work, which converts you to more of a slower twitch fiber variant on average. And it means that you can recover from more volume. Hmm. But it decreases the height of the adaptation curve. Yeah. Like any given session that you train, if you're faster twitch, you get bigger and stronger from that than if you're slower twitch. Mm-hmm. So getting into really good shape to be able to do tons of sets can backfire because it can mean that, yes, now you can do more work, but you don't get as good per unit of work as you could have. Yeah. I mean, a faster twitch athletes can – can do eight sets of quads per week and get, you know, let's say a pound of muscle every three months. A slower twitch athlete can do 16, you know, sets per, per week and get 0.75 pounds of muscle every three months. Who's winning that one? You know what I mean? Uh, you know, certainly the fast twitch guy is because he's doing less work, mm. right? So uh, ideally, you know, what you want is to ask the question of, how can I expand my volume landmarks, lower my MEV, raise my MRV without decreasing how much adaptation I'm causing in each session? A very similar thing occurs with uh, taking things like icing and heating a bit too far and doing anti-inflammatories because they allow you recovery by literally muting or decreasing the magnitude of the adaptive processes. So then you can tell yourself like, hey man, Here's a perfect example. You're like, my fucking chest got sore Monday, bro. I took a shitload of fucking ibuprofen. I can train hard again Wednesday or Thursday. Be like, okay, why are we training it again? Be like, to grow. Be like, did you grow over the course of the last couple of days? Like, yeah. No, you didn't because you took a shitload of anti-inflammatories. Like, right. So why did you do that? Like, right. I don't know. It's almost like, here's, here's a really good analogy. You're mad, you for, eat, mad for the analogies. I love, that's, love the analogies. You're, you want to eat a shitload of food because it's going to help you gain weight. But what you do is the way you get down a lot of food is after 15 minutes of eating it, you throw it up Mm. and then you eat more food after it's like, yeah, Oh, you're eating a lot of food. All right. But the processes that the good thing about the eating the food is the stuff you're not getting because of the way you're increasing your ability to eat food. So if the way you're increasing your ability to train is costing you the very benefits of that training out clearly, doing more endurance training isn't going to erase your benefits altogether. Yeah. It's just going to thin them out. So there's a, there's a trade-off to make there. And, and here's that trade-off isn't just in one direction. For example, if you're faster twitch, but you're really out of shape as far as endurance is concerned, so out of shape you can't even hit your MRV for um, your, uh, your muscles for strength training because you gas out squatting or your lower back gets tired – you're clearly in need of more work capacity to even be able to hit your real quad MRV versus your lung MRV or your lower back MRV. Then you're too out of shape. But taking that process too far is a bad idea. Uh, You know, so Alex Viata, I'm sure you know that name as well, is a very, very, yeah, is the hybrid athlete and talks about, you know, the value of inserting endurance work or aerobic work into strength power programs. And he's very clear about it. He says, okay, if you are out of shape and it's limiting your ability to do volume in strength, 
you need it. But if you're doing your volume just fine, getting really exotically into really good aerobic shape will only cost you. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's that fine line to cross and the volume landmarks explain how that happens. One order of complexity for a lot of people to want to think about. Many people will think about it and will love it and appreciate it. But I think a lot of people are looking for literally a one dimensional answer. Like for this, do I do more or less? And if, if you split into the two dimensions, be like, okay, there's an optimal zone. Doing more is better here. Doing less is better here. Depending on where you are, they're like, eh, yeah, that's too much. And you're like, okay, I tried. The, the, the reason I'm laughing is you did a, your second podcast with Daddy Lennon. It's fucking hilarious where you were like, every time I'm on a seminar, every time, there's always at least that couple of people who just want a black and white answer. And, and I say something. And it's just like, so what you're saying is this. And you're like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I'm saying. And then you go, this problem will be solved for most people if they just preface everything with this. Most of the time. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, I don't say, people say, so this is what you're saying. Like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But anyway. Yeah, I, I, I wish I was lying about that. <laughs> I know. As, as Ralph Ola Emerson says, to be great is to be misunderstood. And, you know what oh, I mean? boy. I don't know if I'd put myself in that category. but uh, Maintenance volume, a very good chapter again. Um, I suppose, why do we need it, Mike? Um, and explain like, why we might go down to maintenance volumes for the viewers and listeners. Before, sure. I give, before, before I give a summary and you go, this fucker just keeps telling everything and then one of my left sell. <laughs> That's right. No, no, that, this is great. Um, so maintenance volume is the amount of training you need to do in a particular characteristic to maintain that characteristic. So let's say you're, as you motherfuckers in Europe are apt to go on holiday. Oh, we're going on holiday, holiday for six hey, years in France. Don't, or don't put on that English accent. No, I'm fucking Irish, but. Oh, fucking holiday. I don't know. My Irish accents. <laughs> that has to get cut out. <laughs> the only thing I'm decent at is the Australian accent. Uh, I've just been a long time working on that. So, so you go on holiday for six fucking years or whatever, you fucking assholes over there do six six weeks in france on the coast of spain oh it's so beautiful you really have to see it because the americans they don't know true life so in any case um you you, you ask yourself the question okay i i'm definitely going to go on holiday it's going to be awesome you know life is more than just strength training but i really do want to hit the gym some number of times to just not get any weaker because i want to come back and start at where i was instead of just degrade mm. the really cool thing about maintenance volume is it's way less than people think. Yeah. Um, there is a really, and James and I really attacked this viciously in that chapter, there is a mythology that maintenance volume and maximum adaptive volume are the same. People really do think that. Um, so, you know, and it's just, it just couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. Like people will say, you know, they'll see you ejected and, lean on holiday and they'll say, you know, oh my God, it must take so much work to, to, to be this way. And you're like, technically it takes very little work. It took a lot to get here, but to keep it as much, much less. It's almost like saying, you know, how difficult is it to learn the Spanish language? Oh my God, really tough, especially if you're an adult. Once you've learned it, how much Spanish do you need to read and speak? to just maintain your abilities. Fucking not much, man. It's not zero, but it's just not that much. So where this comes in handy for sports is uh, programming deloads and active rest periods. We don't want to get worse during those times. We want to recover, but do just enough to keep our fitness characteristics excellent. Probably the place where maintenance volume comes in the handiest is especially for higher level athletes in multi-component sports. And James Hoffman is the real expert on this. I'm just going to try not to butcher his part too bad. 
if you're an MMA fighter and you're an outstanding boxer, a kickboxer, mm. your grappling really needs work. Let's say there's just, ooh, keep it simple and say that's just the only two components of MMA. There are a couple of others. And how much, you can ask the question, how much boxing training, kickboxing, do I need to do if I'm in that position so that I can make the most room that I possibly can for as much grappling training as possible? Because that's what really is my downside. Doing that's going to make me a whole lot better. Yes. And the answer is, there's an answer to that, and that's the maintenance volume. So if you figure out your maintenance volume for various characteristics, you can arrange your training in such a way as to back burner certain things you're not working on without them degrading, yeah. and then front burner the stuff you really need to work on, and after that stuff gets brought up, after your priorities change, you can switch those things around. Uh, it's almost, you know, the, the burner analogy is really easy. Maintenance volume is like asking what temperature of burner do you need, you know, for the, the pot, you know, for simmering the, the potatoes to actually continue to simmer the potatoes. Mm. Because if you get the temperature wrong, they just cool down and they maybe just spoil. If you get it too much, they burn up and then they spoil. But if it's just right, it's the perfect amount to keep those potatoes exactly how you want until you want to really cook with them. Same idea is if you're um, in a bodybuilding sense, this also works really well. If you want to really prioritize your arms, Nobody says, hey, I want to prioritize my arms. It means I also want to lose my chest and back size. They mean, okay, given my chest and back are going to stay the same, how to make my arms bigger so then I go back to the drawing board and, and maybe work more on my chest and back. That maintenance volume is a really good thing to know. The thing is, it's, it's less than minimum effective volume, probably by about two-thirds on average. So, like, if your maintenance, if your minimum effective volume is, like, 10 sets per week, your maintenance volume is often going to be like maybe between six and seven sets per week or something. There's a very, very raw averages, right? But it's, it's, it's not a lot. It's surprisingly little. So, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, it is just really cool to know that stuff so that you know, okay, if my goal is to maintain, I can do a lot less work than I thought, which is great. But also, you know, we're not trying to be lazy. If I really want to hammer the fuck out of my arms and legs, I know that my chest and back can be maintained in very little volume, so I can leave that much more room in my MRV window to put in that much more arm and leg work. Yeah, so people really hate the um, – some, some people really hate the average numbers we throw out there, like MRV maybe around 20 sets, MEV maybe around 10 sets. Yeah. And we always preface this with incredible amount of detail about how big of an estimate this is. It's a kind of – We'll do you one better. We'll give you an idea of how to estimate your own so you don't have to rely on these. Um, and that's what the chapter is for. Some of them are quite easy to find. Some of them are not so easy to find or easy, but take a longer time, mm. but they're all very straightforward. So how you find your MRV is you consistently increase volume until you are unable to recover, which means you're not able to perform at usual levels. You have to track your performance to know this. Once that happens, you go through that process. Well, maybe it was by chance. Maybe it was you had a little bit more fatigue than usual. Maybe, you know, you got fired from work. Maybe your girlfriend broke up with you, um, it, so on and so forth. So you run it, you deload, you drop your fatigue, you run another mesocycle, and you try to get towards those values that you thought maybe were your MRV before. Hmm. If you get to those values and you surpass it altogether, then it's super easy, and uh, I guess it just wasn't your MRV. But after a couple of shots at those ranges, those testing the limits, you realize what your MRV really is. It's always a range because it's always going to be variable, but it's going to be damn close. Here's what we want people to, to take away from that chapter. We will not, you will never conclude that your MRV for biceps is 21.5 sets. Mm -hmm. That'll never fucking happen because there's too much variance and it changes over time. 
how much how, how much do you want to bet someone is still gonna like oh, yeah. do that to you on facebook well, people People ask me how to count supersets versus regular sets. I'm like, what does it matter? You just count everything and just note it. This is a superset. So that you get just a general idea. They're like, is it 1.5 or 2.0? And I'm just like, oh my God, just pick any number you want. But, uh, you know, so, so what, here's what tracking your own MRV can tell you. It can tell you your biceps. Are they hitting MRV around 20? around 25 sets or around 30 sets per week. Mm -hmm. Because if the number is really 30, but you think it's 20, you are missing weeks of progression and this huge curve of adaptation that you're just not getting. Imagine somebody had a program out there that only let you do five sets of biceps per week, but your real MRV was 20. I mean, they would be fucking you royally. On the other hand, imagine if you consistently you thought your MRV was really, you thought it was 30, but it was really 20. Oh my God, dude, you would overreach all the time. Your training would be nothing short of just a sequence of unmitigated disasters. You'd be like, oh, I pulled my bicep again. Oh, I'm just not feeling strong this month. Man, I'm so sore all the time. Oh, I haven't hit a PR in a while. Just like a series of Instagram or Facebook posts. And someone's like, yeah. I guarantee you, you're just be like, how much are you training? Be like, oh man, all the volume. Be like, boom, you're you're exceeding your MRV. So if you know that number here, let's say you you think your MRV is roughly 20 after experimentation for biceps, mm -hmm. 20 sets per week. You can start every mesocycle, and let's say you know your minimum effective volume is around 12. You can start every mesocycle around 12 and scoot up and just know that around 20, you're probably going to shift the bed. Now, some weeks or some months, it'll be 18 or 16, then you deload, no big deal. Some weeks, it'll be 22, 24, but you, you know where you're going at least. You know what I mean? It's, um, I'll give you a perfect analogy. MRV is like using an okay GPS system to tell you where to turn. You still check the fucking road. You don't close your eyes and drive with a fucking GPS, like turn right. You're like, ah, right? Like hit a fucking tree. But you know, like, okay, destinate your right turn in 0.5 kilometers. And you're like, that's close, close, your eye, close your eyes and trust her. Turn left into a tree. Exactly. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, she was trying to kill you. But um, you know what I mean? It's kind of like you still use your fucking hands and you use your eyes to see where the road is because sometimes the GPS is poorly marked. Your signal could be off, right? It's really fine. 500 meters off that happens especially if you're a big city skyscrapers but but you know to start looking when you're close and that's what mrv gives you that's what mev gives you is it for mev stuff imagine if you thought your minimum effective volume was 15 sets per week for biceps but it was really 10 you were missing five sets of progression of the easiest fucking injury-free gains in the world for years because you thought you had to train more i fucked myself over like that so many fucking times I recently fucked myself over like that. I convinced myself that my chest and triceps couldn't possibly have these low MEVs that they really do. But my chest and triceps are really strong, relatively speaking, and they're really fast twitch. It turns out their MEVs are frighteningly low. Now I'm training less than I used to at the beginning of my mesocycles and gaining more than I have. I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck was wrong with me? That's why these things are so important. And just uh, two things on that. So maintenance volume is harder. Is, is, is the hardest one to find out? Isn't that right? So it's hard to find out because nobody wants to take the time and they shouldn't. Yeah. They want to find Cause, it. Because you're, you're going to miss so much training if, you, if totally. it takes two or three times to do it. Yeah. Totally. For hypertrophy training, the best way to find maintenance volume is when you put muscles on the back burner to make other muscles much bigger. You experiment with maintenance volume of the back burner muscles to see how that goes. Yeah. That makes sense. 
So you're not putting them just randomly. You don't want to take a year to find your maintenance volume. You're like, well, this is it. I haven't gotten better in a year though. <laughs> right? So you, those are the best times and during low volume periods. One thing I do want to ask you is, in regards to overload, Mike, and you did reference an article by Greg Knuckles in the book in one of the chapters, how do we equate for like intensity um, as an overload? And what, and what I mean by that is, so let's say like I'm doing 100 kilo for five sets of 10 in the bench press. I'm not doing that. But then the next week I, I did five sets of eight, but it was 105 kilo. Now the five sets of 10, the five sets of 10 at 100 overall is more volume if we calculate it out. But five sets of eight, even though it's less total tonnage, does the intensity of the overload make up for that? It does, and it makes up for it in a roughly equivalent manner from anywhere around five set, sets of five reps uh, per up per to uh, up to up to probably twenty yeah. for sure, up to fifteen, and probably about twenty. So ten sets of twenty reps is going to fatigue you about as much as ten sets of five reps. Mm. And when you think about it, it really is true because if it's RPE equated, like a rep shy of failure on 10 sets of five is fucking brutal. But then you're like, Oh man, there's no way. And then you're like, have you ever done 10 sets of 21 rep shy of failure? You're like, no God, that would kill me. Like I was just about as hard as 10 sets of five, right? It breaks down after a while. So it turns out that, and I'm not entirely sure how the higher rep ranges go, mm. but I know for a fact that less than five reps, it actually gets harder set per set. So if you're doing 10 sets of one, that is like 15 or 20 set equivalents of 10. Yeah, yeah you that will fuck you up in a very, very special way. Yeah. It's different, different kind of fatigue, more uh, nervous system fatigue, more connective tissue fatigue, less actual muscle damage, but it is de definitely the total, sum total of disruption is gonna be higher, right? But within that hypertrophy range, you can roughly trade in sets. I like I suppose going back to Schoenfeld's work, that, like all those things. It's just like the total. Vo it doesn't really matter how you go about the volume, but it's like the total volume. But then, like when you presented that in the book and that, well, when you also have to, you know, take in magnitude here in terms of the sure. load lifted, that's going to kind of compensate for the the drop in total volume. But in, sure. terms, in terms of like homeostatic disruption to the system or the fatigue produced, it actually is the same or maybe a bit more. But then. Yeah. In terms of homeostatic disruption, though, like, like the fatigue would it be more like again the the lower reps, so the lower lower all volume but heavier weight would be more so again we know this it's more neural but like would it be less than homeostatic disruption muscularly because the total volume is actually down but the fatigue would be the same if you if you know what I mean so yes maybe, so it would be more of one kind of fatigue less of another it would be nerve more nervous system fatigue perhaps. Um, uh, more psychological fatigue, yeah. but perhaps less uh, muscular fatigue, less muscle yeah, damage. Cool. But with the dieting phase then, so you spoke about how obviously hypochloric, isochloric, hypochloric affect all these volume landmarks. And one thing I will say to you is when I was reading the book and you were like, you know, uh, literally when you accelerate calories up to about 20%, it tapers off in hypo. And then I'm just like, where is he getting that number from? So I want to know, where did you get that number from? Just experience uh, it's not just experience in myself, it's experience in, you know, it's a wide variety of clientele, probably thousands of people. And uh, kind of as a sort of like, uh, if you talk to almost every good bodybuilding coach and bodybuilder, just person who's tried to get jacked, they're like, hey man, if I just fucking eat a shitload of food, 
my fatigue will like go down, right? You're like, yeah, like what if I eat double the food? They're like, you're just going to get fat. Like, but will I be much less fatigued? You're like, nah, after a point, man, it's actually a little fatiguing for your body to process that much food. I mean, like, yeah. you know, the burden of having to eat, if you eat 5,000 calories a day versus 4,000, it's a big boost of fatigue. Mm. Um, if you eat 10,000, you will be more fatigued because you're going to be fatigued from having to eat that much. <laughs> you, haven't seen that video, you haven't seen that video of the girl who does that, the 10,000 challenge? Well, that's pretty impressive. Oh, man, it's unbelievable. But anyway, so get into, for whatever time you've left there, so again, iso, sorry, uh, hypo, iso, and hyperchloric. I mean, again, it's pretty self-explanatory of what's probably going to happen to your bodies, but I, I suppose for someone reading it for the first time, they can start getting, oh, what goes up, what goes down, MEV? So yeah, MEV usually goes up, MRV comes down if you're hypochloric and vice versa. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things there that are very obvious. Like it's very obvious that your MRV goes down when you're dieting hmm. for hypochloric. What's not obvious is that your, MRV, your MEV goes down when you're hypercaloric. Yeah. So people will say like, oh, man, you, you're eating a lot of calories now. You're going to grow. You should train a lot. No, 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 no. You should start your training with less training than you used to because the anabolic signaling from the food itself is so powerful that you only need to add a little bit of training to that to get net balance in the positive. Yeah. So the cool thing about um, uh, the hypercaloric diet is that you can start with less training yeah. and with more training, you have a longer, more productive mesocycle or you can take bigger jumps either way you want to do it that is a really, really awesome benefit versus if you're hypocaloric, both of them contract. MRV goes down, MEV goes up. And after a while, and this is really good advice for people on a hypocaloric diet, they'll say, how do I progress week to week? Don't add that many sets. Don't add that much weight because you won't have that big of a band of MEV to MRV to work through. You, you, were, you were kind of saying, you've got a really great chart here about like the MEV, MRV curves for someone in a hypochloric, isochloric, or hypochloric diet. And you kind of like said, when you're in a hypochloric, don't do it this way. And then when you're hyper, don't do this way. And then the next chart, you show like the way that the, the spectrum closes yep. for hypo and then opens up for hyper. So yep. yeah, it's fantastic stuff. Great stuff. So guys, one episode with uh, Dr. Mike Isertel, um, absolute gent. Only contacted him last week and he's like, absolutely, I'll hop on and uh, get the book. Everything will be linked up in the show notes. All right, for all the viewers, guys, thanks for meeting. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, it helps. And if you're on iTunes, also do the review stuff because apparently it helps. I know nothing about the analytics, but come on, like this information, unbelievable. Like Mike Isertel for over an hour, like, I mean, it's just savage. So uh, take care. I'll talk to everyone soon, and I really appreciate you watching. Peace. Peace. Mike, that was fucking class. Sorry, awesome. The fucking, I got real dark. It was just raining outside. I was like, geez, I'm getting really dark here. And I'm going, yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> yeah. I was fucking disappointed. The, 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 the connection was throwing me off the start. I was like, oh, I wanted to call him a big Russian beast and like get on with him at the start. And it's all like, oh, now it's all awkward. And I was like, all right, yeah. I got to set the tone for the rest of the Yeah, day. no, it was really good. It was really good, really good flow. Um, my wife is going to kill me if I don't go uh, train with her yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So sorry. Uh, shoot me an email about when you want to do part two and uh, I will we'll coordinate. Oh, brilliant. But when you get back, um, congratulations, enjoy your honeymoon, and enjoy your train session. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you. All right, Mike. Take care. Right.